Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is half an hour of the best science you will hear on radio for the next half an hour, at least. I guarantee you that. Um, Especially if you say listen to us. Yep. Lock in that dial. My name is Chris, and today, uh, look, I don't know if you can, if you're a long-time listener, you might remember I went on a bit of a a, kind of a thing last year, a train talking about medical research and good and bad and that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't want to get into that again, but I'm just going to revisit like some of the principles that briefly and looking at a question, a kind of a medicalish question you might see a lot in the media, which is. Does food A or food B cause or cure cancer? Mm. I think we see a lot of these reports. Um, essentially, it all washes over you and you choose to believe what you want to believe. We're going to look and see what science <laughs> has to say about this en masse. There has been actual research done on this kind Ooh. of question. And, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Anyway, Manisha, surprise me. What do you got? Oh, so today I actually want to go into some exciting new findings that were made in China. Um, researchers had led an archaeological dig from 2007 to about 2013, and this week they revealed some of their findings. So I thought that it would be very cool to share that with our listeners. Excellent. And Stu, what about you? Interesting that you're talking about foods uh, curing things or not curing things or making people ill. I'm actually going to look at kale. And what is kale and why is there so much fuss about kale? And, kale and is chips? it justified? The science of kale. The science of kale. Do kale chips are kale chips still healthy if I dip it in garlic aioli? I'm sure Stu will answer that. For <laughs> I, us. I will get to that Ooh, yeah. in due okay. course. Brilliant. Well, let us let us on with this free science show. All right. Now you may have heard sayings, very popular sayings, such as. You are what you eat. Yes, that's a very old saying. It is an old saying. Even older, perhaps, is a saying from um, Hippocrates, is that how you say it? Um, Uh, I think you'll find it's pronounced Hippocrates. Hippocrates, there (laughs) you go. Thank you, Bill and Ted. Um, Let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. This, like, it sounds very wise, but this is a common attitude, and I think people put a lot of weight on diet regarding health. Um, I think there is a very sort of prevalent attitude you get. People think that just by eating the right things, you can magic yourself well or that kind of stuff. Or if you get sick, it's because you have at some point eaten the wrong thing. And it's kind of, yeah, there's all this magical power um, attributed to, to diet. It, it, is, it is kind of interesting considering how varied people's diets are around the world mm. and that humans yeah. have been able to basically find food, w- whatever part of the world they've colonized, to think that there's a right or a wrong yeah. food to eat because it seems like but i'm sure that would have came it. from somewhere oh poisonous berries wrong food to well eat. yeah there are definitely pluses and minuses yeah you're right there are poisonous things that you can't eat there are things that you have to eat like um you know vitamins for instance you yeah. have to get from your food so yeah there are certainly there are some there is some truth to it but the human body of course is very complicated and there's a lot more to 
you know, your wellness than just what you eat. But anyway, it is a popular belief. And uh, one of the things that this is manifested in is not only a range of popular books saying do or do not eat this food, (laughs) um, but never-ending news reports of this or that food cures or prevents cancer or causes cancer. Um, I just did a search today. Um, I did a search on news.com.au for this, the terms food and cancer, and I found articles like soy foods protect breast cancer patients, uh, drinking white wine could be putting you at risk for cancer, red meat more likely to cause cancer if it's put on the barbecue, and oh. <laughs> seed oils and cancer, David Gillespie on the ingredient more dangerous than sugar. Uh, David Gillespie, of course, the author of Sweet Poison, and yes, he does have a new book out where he's implicating seed oils as well. Mm. He's trying to sell you that. Wow. Interesting. So he, the sales have gone down on his sugar book, apparently. Basically, yeah. yeah, it seems. Anyway, so you do see a lot of these things. Now, often these aren't just necessarily hype from some self-appointed expert. They often will be based on, say, some study that's been published, and it'll be saying, scientists have proven in a new study that X is bad for you. Uh, and there's usually just one study that's come out that gets all the hype. And this is why things are often turned, you know, every every week because there is always a new study being published. So question is, can you believe any of this? No. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's the short answer. But uh, it's, it's more interesting than that. Okay, there, now, there was a study that was actually looked at this very question. Um, it's a few years old, I will admit. Um, you know, over the summer, I was doing reading some of my, my, my back issues of, of scientific journals and came across this one. And it's from 2013, <laughs> so it's about four years old. It's still worth looking at, though. It's by uh, Jonathan D. Schoenfeld and John Ioannidis. Um, John Eden Ioannidis is... Um, quite a well-known researcher. His most famous paper is called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. And it's all about how, you know, I guess bias in research, but also the way that statistics work and why, you know, something is like you can't actually believe something is published on one study. So what they did, they tried to apply this kind of approach of looking at the quality of the research to studies on whether food causes cancer or not. And they decided to check, check 50 common ingredients. Now, the way they chose these ingredients was they picked a, a recipe book, in this case, the, the Boston Cooking School Cookbook, um, and they had a random number generator to choose randomly a page from the cookbook, and then they would take the first recipe on that page and they kept and get all the ingredients from that recipe, and they kept doing this until they had 50 ingredients that then they could analyse. Um, how else would you do it? Come on. How, why wouldn't ready. you find the ingredient that's the most common in the book? Like what? if butter comes up a hundred thousand times. But that's the thing, you know, you, you choose randomly choosing recipes until they had fifty ingredients. Okay. So yeah, you're right. Butter did come up, um, but they had ingredients. They had recipes like you know veal cutlets, um, boiled tripe, cheese fondue, uh, a pot of coffee, mm-hmm. um, Washington terrapin. Um, Is so that actually a little turtle. Yeah, terrapin came Aww. up on their ingredient list. Wow. Um, Surprisingly, see that's not a common food. Not, yeah, I wouldn't assume it's a common food. Well, well, what they did when they got these fifty ingredients and they checked to see if there was research done on it, and some of the the rarer ones like terrapin, there hadn't been clinical studies done on. Um, other things like you know bay leaf, for instance, there weren't you know clinical studies done on bay leaf. Although there have been some animal studies using um, extracts and bay leaves, interestingly. Mm. But yeah, they found fifty ingredients, um, and they found that eighty percent of the ingredients actually had um, at least one study identified. So basically, they searched for these um, these ingredients and 
the term cancer and risk factors in in um, a database of medical research. Um, so they found 80% of them had at least one study. And um, a large number of these studies had found that there was a relationship between these ingredients and cancer. So 33% of studies, so 39% um, of the studies showed that, claimed to show that the, um, the ingredient increased the risk of cancer. Um, 33% came with a decreased risk of cancer, and then there was a smaller amount in the middle. Um, and, yeah, so then they, they looked at, they gathered together all these, these different studies to see what the quality of this research was. Um, and, look, it's quite interesting because um, one of the things they did was they looked at this little graph for each ingredient. Um, well, the ingredients that had, like, a lot of studies and, and sort of stretched out, did they increase or decrease the risk of cancer? And most of them straddle the divide, as in most of them will have... Some studies showing they, they're good for you, some studies showing they're bad for you, um, which, of course, makes you question the whole point of the exercise, but also whether you, know, you can believe any one study. Um, but they also looked further into the, um, the quality of the research, and they found that most of the, um, the, the studies, um, something like 80% of the studies had a, a weak relationship, like very, barely significant. Yeah, so it was like they're not very strong results, effectively that they're getting. So, and sample size tends to be a big one in these kind of studies. Right? It is, it is, but also I guess one of the things that 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 it kind of implies is that the effects, if they exist, aren't large, mm-hmm. because yeah, as you said, sample size is a factor. The more studies you do, then the the less of a factor you you you, you find. So they all, as well as looking at individual studies, they look for meta analyses. Oh yeah, um, which is where you. Um, uh, you combine a whole lot of studies, and what they found there typically is a meta-analysis had a much smaller effect even than the um, than the original research because you know you combine everything together, you combine these positive and negatives together, and it kind of tends to even out. But yeah, so it's interesting. Like Chuck, say, na- name me an ingredient. I'll see if I've got it on my list. Celery. Uh, sorry, they did not make it. I, I haven't got results for celery. <laughs> Red meat. Um, be more specific. Beef. Beef. Okay. Um, well, beef is, is actually. Beef? Um, weighted to um, giving you increasing your risk of cancer, but there were a couple of studies that showed that it decreased your risk of cancer. So, um, it but kind what of kind of cancer? Like, what's their realm well, of reference? They 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 found there was like a huge variation in the types of cancer, also, but also the kinds of amounts that were studies of these things. So it's very hard to actually combine the research to get. So a if you ate answer. a whole cow every yeah. single day for the rest of your life, you might die. Yeah. Yep. Look. Um, I could get to name more ingredients, but um, yeah, it was generally <laughs> that there was this kind of. Um, not a strong result. There were some things that did have a, a kind of a very definite trend, and these are kind of unsurprising. Like bacon, for instance, was definitely on the bad side, and, and you know we all know this. You know? Yeah, no, no one would be out there recommending that you eat <laughs> lots of bacon all the time. Well, there are some people who do, but how about if some you... people who do eat yeah. lots of bacon all no, the time? Some people who recommend it, you know? Really? Yeah, uh, and then <laughs> olive oil is on the good side, for yeah. instance. Um, so there are some things where there is fairly definite, and your vegetables tend to be on the good side, and your your meats and your sugars and your salts and things tend to be on the on the bad side. Um, so you know, when essentially the things that um, stand up to continued research are the things that you generally know are bad for you or good bad, or that the your reputable health organisations put out. Um, so. Yeah, it kind of says don't trust an individual study. You know, look at the their weight of research, and the weight of research is going to be generally your basic things of you know eat your fruit and vegetables, mm-hmm. um, don't eat so much meat. Um, the other interesting thing though is when they combined all the study, all the meta analyses together, they found uh, from all the ingredients, you kind of got a net null result, implying that if you ate all these recipes and you had all these ingredients, then the positives and negatives would cancel out, and you'd get 
kind of an even result, which is probably not surprising if you consider that relative to what, you know, relative mm. to the, the null hypothesis. But it kind of also suggests that maybe it's not something to worry a huge amount about what you're putting. If you avoid the, the known culprits, but don't worry about a couple of decimal points either way. Um, if it's like shaky research, um, just follow the general good eating guidelines and that's pretty much the best you can do, I think. Hmm. So um, roughly between 2007 and 2013, Zhen Yang Li from the Chinese Academy of Science and his colleagues were leading a dig in China. During the dig, they discovered some stone tools and nearly 50 fossils that they could put together and um, form two partial crania. That's to say they found basically two partial skulls. Human skulls. Yeah, so, well, they think so. Um, So... The interesting thing about these two skulls is actually that, um, like, their origin. It's sort of hard to place where they've come from. Um, The researchers were able to date the skulls back to approximately 105,000 years ago to um, 125,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. But the skulls are actually so different from the things that we've already encountered or things that are available in the fossil record. Um, The researchers described the crania as a morphological mosaic with differences from and similarities to their Western contemporaries. Basically, they're arguing that the skull has both features of humans and of Neanderthals, a mix that we don't yet have record of in the fossil record. So that's pretty cool. Um, So the researchers are just having a hard time sort of placing where these skulls belong. They resemble Neanderthals, and they have a prominent brow ridge and inner ear bones that are more similar to Neanderthals than they are to Homo sapiens. But because the brow ridges are thinner and the skull bones are actually a lot less robust, they seem to resemble early humans. Have they um, been able to extract any uh, DNA. DNA or anything from this? It's not from this study as of yet. They've been mostly looking at the morphology of it, but I think that I'm sure DNA studies will come up. Yeah, because one of the first things that come to mind is um, the other mysterious species that we know very little about, which is the Denisovans. Ooh, 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 that comes up later too. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, um, so with all of these mixing and things like that, there's some researchers that are arguing that these are Denisovans. Um, I'll get to that in just a second. Um, so these... These skulls, they were just finding that they're just, they don't fit. They have different shapes. They have different structures. Uh, what they would have, have expected from a Neanderthal skull doesn't seem to be there. The brain size is a bit larger than they expected from early humans and from Neanderthals, so they're not quite sure what's going. And so all of this discussion has just naturally generated that, um, has naturally generated a discussion amongst paleontologists. And there, there, there are some researchers that argue that these skulls are not completely unique to previous findings. So with the Denisovians, um, they found bones in the Denisovian cave in in Siberia. Um, And at the time of the discovery, um, they were able to um, do some DNA analysis, and they were still unclear about where the uh, Denisovians fell on the family or on the tree of life as they had many differences too and a lot of, um, or sorry, similarities too and a lot of differences from the existing records. But I think they only found like a couple of thumb bones or something. Yeah, it was, it was some yeah. small bones. So it there's was, no more from their genetics than they are from the actual bones. No, yeah. So they were only able to extract a very little bit of DNA. So the analysis isn't completely clear. But what they revealed uh, or 
The um, the Denisovian DNA analysis revealed that the bones found in Siberia were roughly um, 50,000 to 100,000 years old. And so that's sort of in the same time range as these skulls that were found in China, which were just dated to over 100,000 years ago, mm. um, ago. And then also the DNA was showing... Um, hundreds of thousands of years of isolation and this mix with the Neanderthals and modern humans, just like the skulls appear to be. So it's an interesting piece of the puzzle, but one of the lead researchers from the the China team, her name is Zhu Zheng Wu, she maintained that um, these new skulls actually belong to a kind of unknown or archaic human that survived on in Asia to 100,000 years ago. The, the authors reckon that um, there are some similarities with other Asian fossils and that these skulls may have been part of a um, Eastern Asian population that was that had been mixing with Neanderthals at some stage of their history. Um, I'm not actually quite sure what... Uh, I'm sure that there will be future findings, but there's not a very clear story right now, but it's quite interesting to see all of this un- unraveling. Yeah, human evolution is one of those really hotly contested yeah, areas. That, yeah, and it's hard. I guess there's like so little data to go on, but such big conclusions drawn from that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it's sort of, it's I don't know, it's this massive puzzle that you can only use, like you only have little tidbits of information mm. to try to solve everything. And people bring their own kind of prejudices and mm. theories mm. to it. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, well, mm. we'll, we'll watch this space and hope they get yeah, some, yeah, some exactly. more detail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. Okay, it's time to talk about kale. Do you do you like kale? Do you hate kale? John Kale? No, the vegetable. Not like JJ kale. kale either. I like kale actually. You do um, like kale? I do like kale, yeah. Uh like in moderation. You can overdo kale. Mm. I find, but um yeah, I quite like kale. I've I've found that if you uh cover it in oil and salt and pepper and roast it in the oven, <laughs> it's actually it quite makes nice. delicious chips, but <laughs> yeah. I suspect if you covered cardboard in yeah. Oil and salt and pepper and roast in the oven would probably yeah. still be pretty good. Well, kale's got its own kind of unique tang that it, um, I can't sometimes get a craving for, I think. It, it does. and yeah. But, you know, at, at the moment it's kind of being promoted as this amazing superfood and people are recommending putting it in smoothies and claiming health benefits yeah, all over the place. Mm. Uh, you know, cooking shows and, and eating blogs and stuff are just all over the kale. So what is kale? I thought I would just have a quick look at what kale is. Obviously, it's a plant. Yes. Yes, mm. it is a plant. And the part that we eat is the leaves of the plant. Really? Yep. Which is sort of important, and I'll come back to that later, which is uh, an, it's an interesting part of the story of kale. But the species name of kale is Brassica oleracea, and this is also kind of important because Brassica oleracea is... Also, the species name of some other vegetables you'll probably know. I thought mm. it sounded familiar. Like broccoli, cauliflower, Ooh. cabbage, Brussels, Brussels sprouts. sprouts. Yep. 
and kohlrabi. Wait, wait, wait a second. These things all look very different. Well, they do, but they are actually all the same species, and they'll all cross with each other too. Ooh. This is interesting. I mean, if you're interesting, like, in fact, we're talking about different species of humans and stuff like that, <laughs> and, you know, the, we expect that, like, the, you know, the, we are to tell whether animals are the same species that, you know, there'd be a lot of similarities there, but, I mean... It's amazing that you get such variety in this one particular species of Well, plant. it is. It is. And it probably suggests, too, that uh, early on, because these are all kind of European vegetables, um, that early on in Europe, there probably wasn't a lot of choice uh, <laughs> for what you'd eat. So um, they basically took this plant, a wild plant that looks kind of like kale, um, and bred it for different things. So they were selecting for different things. The cabbages they selected because they form those big cabbage heads where mm. the leaves sort of fold all in on mm. each on themselves. Um, broccoli was selected for its flowering stems. Mm-hmm. Cauliflower selected for the white flower heads, which is what the cauliflower actually is. And kohlrabi, which you may have seen around, was selected for the swollen stem at the base that makes it look mm. like a kind of turnipy thing. Yep. Yeah. Um, whereas kale is basically just an open leafy plant. And right. Okay. Is it related really to it. lettuce? Kind of Absolutely like... far removed from lettuce. Really? Lettuce is a daisy. Really? Yeah. yeah. If you see lettuce, lettuce is a daisy. <laughs> yeah. um, so broccoli is related to cabbage, but cabbage is not related to lettuce. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so Interesting. if they're all the same species, why does kale get all the good press? I mean, nobody's saying that broccoli's bad for you, but it doesn't have the superfood yeah. stamp yeah. of approval that I kale blame the hipsters. Well, there's, there's probably something in that. The hipsters, they're always up to something. Mm. But one of the main reasons is that the kale, w- what we eat of the kale is the leaf of the kale. Um, broccoli, cauliflower, kohlrabi, we don't eat the leaves. Cabbages, the leaves are really tightly packed together and they're shaded, so they're really blanched, oh, quite, yeah, yeah, quite yeah. pale. Um, whereas the kale leaves out in the sun... Um, a lot of the, the goodness, a lot of the vitamins and those sorts of things are made by being exposed to the right. sun. So they're kind of protective pigments and all these sorts of things yeah. um, that the leaves have. Uh, so a lot of the goodness is in those leaves that are in the sun when if they're sort of blanched like in a cabbage, there's not much in it but a bit of carbohydrate and some bits and pieces. They're interesting colour though, aren't they? Because like they're kind of like yeah, yeah Russian kale is kind of greyish. And your um your Russian your Tuscan kale. kale is nearly black, isn't it? Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of different varieties. Really, you know, all I've purple, seen is the, the really purple, dark and purple, dark yeah. green and purple ones. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and they do have they do enough. have interesting uh, colours. But again, that's just kind of people have selected them because they look nice. Yeah, yeah, they all turn green when they're cooked anyway. I think yeah. pretty much. Oh, okay. Um, so compared to the other cabbage cousins, kale comes out on top for things like vitamin C and vitamin A. In fact. Uh, 100 grams of kale gives you 190% of your vitamin <laughs> A requirements, right. which means that you're weighing out about 90% of that. Uh, and vitamin C, it's about 200% of your Whoa. daily requirement for 100 grams, which is, you know, it's, it's, it, that's, that's, some good, that's some good vitamins. I wonder if you can overdose on kale. Imagine I, you just... I will come back to that, actually. Um, they've also got relatively high mineral content. They've got calcium, magnesium, and iron in reasonable amounts, so you're actually getting a decent... Uh, whack of vitamins and minerals. Yeah, Kale right. is also quite high in kilojoules for a vegetable. Oh. It's about 200 kilojoules per 100 grams, which is pretty high. Broccoli's only got about 140 uh, per 100 grams. Um, 
Brussels sprouts are the closest in energy with about 180 kilojoules per 100 grams. So actually Brussels sprouts are very close to kale in the vitamins and mineral stakes. But if you didn't like kale, it's I reckon it's probably pretty <laughs> unlikely you're not going to like Brussels sprouts. Yeah, let's not get into Brussels sprouts. They're, they sound, they're, they're more complicated again, aren't they? Like they have, they, they're kind of like a cabbage, but they grow differently to a cabbage. Well, they grow, yeah, they, the, the, little, the little Brussels sprouts are like tiny cabbages, but they grow in the leaf stalk, base up a stalk. Yeah, so yeah. they're quite odd-looking plants when they're growing. Man, this is a strange species. Yeah, it is um, a strange species. So kale is actually quite nutritious. It even has some protein in it, but it's mostly about the vitamins and minerals that you get out of it. Um, and as I said earlier, that's because we mainly eat the leaves, and that's where those nutrients get concentrated. But if we ate broccoli leaves, you'd probably get similar results. You sometimes do. I think like your Chinese broccoli. Yeah. Um, and well, then then we we might actually be veering into a different species. Oh, okay. There because there's. That the the, the, uh, the Asian cabbages actually come from a different species. They right. come from okay. what we grow as turnips in Europe. We won't go cool. there. We won't go there. It gets more confusing. Wow. Um, Who so thought vegetables were so cool? You can actually <laughs> find other green leafy vegetables have similar sort of vitamins and mineral content. You know, silver beet and spinach and that sort of thing. Uh, but kale still beats them out slightly in most of those nutritional measures. So should we all eat as much kale as we possibly can? Uh, well, it depends whether you like the taste, for one thing. Um, but there is actually a potential downside to eating too much kale, or in fact, any of the cabbage family. Is this can... oxalic acid? No, 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 no. It's not oxalic acid, which you get from silver beet. If you okay. eat too much silver beet, you can potentially get oxalic acid poisoning. The cabbage family can lead to iodine deficiency. Ah. Oh. Um, there is a chemical in the cabbages, in all of the cabbages, and also in things like rocket and uh, some of the other relatives, uh, which, if um, if you get too much of it, um, flushes out iodine from your body. Uh, so, especially if you juice kale, you will get potentially reduced iodine levels. And combined with an avoidance... Uh, of iodized table salt, which is where most people get their extra iodine or used to get their extra iodine. Now people have pink Himalayan salt and all sort of gourmet Mm. salts, which aren't iodized salt. Um, So you can actually end up with enlarged thyroid, uh, which is known as goiter. And if you are a pregnant woman, that can have dire consequences on your developing babies. So there is actually a a downside to eating too much kale, but the chances are pretty slim of uh of actually developing that. You probably have thyroid problems already, so don't don't panic and throw all your broccoli in the in the rubbish um just yet. Maybe go and talk to your doctor if you're worried about it. Um but you know, just like everything else, as we were saying before, if you follow a balanced diet and eat a little bit of everything you're probably better off doing that mm. than just uh, trying to get all of your nutrients from one magical superfood like kale. Exactly. Don't just um, try to live on smashed avocado, though, because you'll never be able to afford that house. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting foundation if you want to talk to us talk back to us uh you can get in touch we have a gmail account lost at gmail uh you can also find us on twitter and on the facebook 
and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in, in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.